day to you. And uh, normally in most churches, they're going to have a Father's Day message. And what we're going to have here today is a Lord's Day message. Uh, and and now, now listen, tonight you are going to get your fill, men. Pastor Frank's been doing a little series on the family while the young people are out of the room. And so now he can really get nasty and dirty with us. So, and, and like he couldn't before. But uh, men, make sure that you're here uh, tonight for that. And you will be challenged beyond measure, and, and you'll probably even get a warm fuzzy here and there, but the warm fuzzy will not be here this morning. Um, what we're going to see here today, rather than a warm fuzzy, may singe your nose hair. Um, yeah, there you are. And what we're seeing is in Revelation chapter 14, and I say that in all honesty. Uh, this is a very, very powerful passage. We, we Last week, we just got to the place to where we're just coming to the power of the thing. We set it up big time. Well, it was actually two weeks ago. We set it up big time, and then when the real power came, the time ran out. And uh, so this morning, we're going to see some, some heavy-duty stuff from the Word of God. If you did not receive a study sheet when you came in, we'll take just a second to make sure you get one of those. Why don't you raise your hand right now? And uh, men, why don't you very hurriedly make your way down and let's try to get ourselves rolling this morning. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. And we are in a section of scripture where it actually is talking about the Lord's day, the second coming of Christ. Uh, I wasn't using that in reference to this being Sunday. I'm talking about the fact that this passage is talking about the day that God's been talking about all through the Word of God. I, I think this is a group of people that understands, and if you don't have this down yet, you need to make sure that you get this, that the theme of the Bible is all about the Lord's Day. In Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, the seventh day he set aside and he sanctified it, he blessed it, he set aside a day for himself, 2 Peter 3.8 says, Now you may miss a lot of things in the Word of God, but don't miss this. Be not ignorant of this one thing. That with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. If you go plug that into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what you find out is there will basically be 6,000 years of human history. And that seventh day, that 7,000 years, is the day that he set aside, that he's blessed, that it's the Lord's day. It's the day when he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a period of a thousand years, and that's spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 20. And I can't wait for us to get to that place in the Word of God. But right now, what we're seeing is what is going to set up that time when He will rule and reign on the earth. And just to kind of pull us back in to the passage, let's pick up Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14. John says, And I, I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes 
are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And sometimes we can fall prey to reading through the Scripture and not really fully understanding or even visualizing what's taking place here. But this is an incredible, incredible time of God's vengeance, of God's wrath being unleashed on the earth. The last time we took the time to just begin to go through the Word of God, to begin to see what God says about this day that's described for us in verse 20. And we saw that it's a day of calamity. It's a day of his power. It's the day of battle. It's the day of evil. It's the day of visitation. It's the day of destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah says it's a cruel day. It's a day of his fierce anger, a day of grief, a day of trouble, a day of the east wind, a day of the great slaughter, the day of the afflicted, a day of vengeance, the day of wrath, the day of indignation, the day of rebuke, a day of darkness, a great and very terrible day a day of the whirlwind, uh, the day of the Lord's sacrifice, a day when the mighty men shall cry bitterly, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, the day of his coming, the day of judgment, uh, the great and notable day, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, a day that will come as a thief in the night, a day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the great day of the Almighty. And I think, and I went through that again, just for you folks that may not have been here so that you can begin to understand that God, all the way through the Bible, and what I just read for you there is just all of the verses, all through the Bible, and it's just a portion of the verses where God begins to tell you about this day that we're talking about right here. A great, a great day of his wrath, of his vengeance, and of his hatred. Now, when you come to church and you hear somebody talking about the wrath of God, and you hear somebody talking about the fact that God hates, all of a sudden we, we kind of think, you know, I, I may have found myself into this room one time, but uh, I ain't coming back. You know, that's, they're still doing that hellfire and brimstone thing down there. And, you know, what we want when we come to church is, man, we want something that's going to, help us with our everyday life we don't want to go and feel like we're going to get beat up when we go man we want something positive there's enough negative you don't want to have to go to church and have to get that there you know all that kind of stuff and oh my goodness man i i want you i want you to enjoy coming to church but i want you to enjoy it because you love the word of god and because you want to get what God has to say. And, and the truth of the matter is, folks, though we love to talk about love, though we love to talk about grace, though we love to talk about mercy and forgiveness, do you understand? And, and oh, please work with me right now to try to understand this. You can't understand God's love without understanding that God hates. You can't understand the grace of God unless you understand his law. You can't comprehend his forgiveness without understanding the penalty of sin. You see, if God didn't have wrath and anger, do you understand he would cease to be the God that you want? 
That's what makes him God. You see, on one hand, God is absolute perfect love. And yet, on the other hand, he is equally perfect hate. Say what? A God of, of hate? You, you see, if I were to tell you this morning, listen, the greatest place in all of the Word of God to see the wrath of God, where do you think I'd take you? Revelation 14, 20? Nope. You know where I'd have to take you to see the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God? I'd have to take you to the cross. Because do you understand? The wrath of God for sin was poured out upon His only begotten Son. If you ever want to know how much God hates sin, just go to the cross and check it out. He's giving his only begotten Son to die that death on the cross because He became sin. And He was willing, because He was sin, to unleash His wrath. And check this out. If I were to take you to the most incredible place in all the Word of God to show you the love of God, to show you the greatest demonstration in all the world of the love of God. You know where I'd take you? I'd take you to the cross. Do you begin to understand it now? You cannot comprehend God's hatred for sin and appreciate God's love for sinners until you see what he did on that cross. And they both come together, and you know what? They both fit real perfectly. But you can't have a God of love without having a God of hate, a God of anger, a God of vengeance. That's what makes Him holy. That's what makes Him just. And let me just say from the outset to you folks that may be here this morning that don't know the Lord as your Savior. That's why the cross is such a significant thing in your life. Because that's where God's wrath was poured out and because that's where God's love was poured out. And based on what you do with his son that was hanging on that cross, you know what that's going to do? It's going to determine for you whether or not you, for all of eternity, experience and become an object of God's wrath or you become an object and experience for all of eternity God's love. But let me just tell you something. You ain't bypassing that cross because that's where it all comes together. And you can be thinking about this this morning we begin to make our way through this message. If you've never come to Christ, and by that I'm not talking about church membership. I'm not talking about you got baptized when you were a baby. I'm not talking about you've been through catechism class of a church. I'm not talking about you're doing best to keep sacraments. I'm not talking about you being as good as you can possibly be. I'm not talking about keeping the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about if you've never come to the place in your life where before God you came to Him and said, Oh God, I am a sinner. Oh God, I'm helpless 
And I understand there's nothing that I can do to remove my sin, and I understand that's why Christ became a man and took my payment, took my penalty for sin, and I'm trusting what he did and he alone on that cross to be my only salvation. Listen, all the way through today, you need to be asking yourself, have I ever come to that place in my life where I trusted Christ and Christ alone, apart from anything and everything else, have I ever come to that place? And that's where we'll be moving for you folks who are lost and for you folks that do know the Lord as your Savior today. I just want to tell you something. You know, sometimes we can, we can get to the place to where we don't want to tell all the story. When we invite somebody to come to church, we're just hoping. I mean, tell me if this isn't true. We're just hoping that we're not going to be in one of those heavy-duty passages where God's nostrils are going to be flaring and, you know, and all that. And so Pastor Mark or Pastor Frank's mess noses are going to be flaring and all that. Kind of, we're just hoping that it's going to be one of those nice days, one of those warm, fuzzy days, because we really, oh, you know, people today don't respond to, to that, that wrath message and we've said this so often. I, I want to just I want to just say it here before we move into all of this because I'm telling you, it's heavy duty. I, w but we've talked about this so often. If you go to the doctor for a checkup, and you walk into the doc, and he does all of the the stuff, and he comes back into the room, and he says, "I've got good news for you. We can't find a trace of cancer." You're like, "Yeah, that's cool." But, if six months before that, the doc said, you are full and running over with cancer, and we give you six months to live, and then you go in for your exam, and he goes through all the tests, and he walks back in, and he says, I've got good news for you. We can't find a trace of cancer. Now, is that good news or what? It's good news based on the bad news that he gave you. And you know why most people today are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you know what the gospel is? Say it with me. It's, it's the good news. That's not my words. That's what the word gospel means. You know why people reject the good news of God? It's because we're so afraid for them to find out that the God of love in the Bible is a God of hate, is a God of anger, is a God of wrath, and is, in fact, a God of vengeance. And it will be poured out. And, and so let's, let's go into this thing understanding today that people respond to good news based on their understanding of bad news. And again, we love the love and mercy words and grace, but again... You don't understand the significance of those words until you see God's utter hatred for sin. And then when you understand that he, in light of how he hates sin, how that he loves sinners, now we're talking about good news. In fact, let me just take you to a, a place or two. Look, at, look in Romans chapter 1 for a second. 
laughing. Somebody got shot. I'm just glad it wasn't me. Romans chapter 1. Paul says in verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the good news, the gospel, to you that are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Okay, now watch this. He just said, Here's, you know what I want to do, man? I want to come and I want to preach the gospel to you people who are in Rome. I want to give you the good news. And watch where he starts in his presentation of the gospel. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know where he starts? Much unlike our Laodicean approach to giving people the gospel, he starts with the bad news. The bad news is, check it out, listen. The wrath of God is going to be poured out upon all unrighteousness and upon all ungodliness. And that's where he starts talking about the good news. Go back to John chapter 3. This wasn't just Paul's approach. John chapter 3, of course, uh, where most of us love to go in our presentation of the gospel, but please don't miss what Jesus said in John chapter 3, in verse 36. He says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's where most of us want to just keep it. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, a very familiar passage. We just sometimes miss it in its context. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Watch this now. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others... Do you understand what God is saying to us? Listen, every person that is born into this world is born into this world spiritually dead, and from God's vantage point, they are from their very birth a child of a child of wrath. We don't like that, do we? We hold that precious little baby in our hands, and they are precious. And all we love and oh, they're just so precious. And do you understand? From God's vantage point, because they were born into this world spiritually dead, they are a child of wrath. And go over to Colossians chapter three.
And he's talking about now that we've been saved, here's what we're to do. We're to seek the things above and set our affection there, not on the things of the earth. He tells us in verse 5 something else that we're to do. Mortify, therefore, your members upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Watch verse 6 now. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And who the children of disobedience are are all of the people who have never come to Christ. And he says, now listen, now that you've been saved, don't walk like they walk because do you realize that those are the things that cause the wrath of God to be poured out upon them? But, but I'm trying to get you to see here this morning that this thing of understanding the wrath of God, the anger of God, the hatred of God is what helps us to have a full, well-rounded view of who God is and makes you understand in a whole new dimension God's love, God's grace, and His mercy. And now, let's, let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. And let's, let's start trying to put all of this into the context of, of what we see here. Now, in Revelation 14, in the passage that we read, verses 14 through 20, what we talked about last week, or the last time, is that there are two harvests that are presented in this passage. The first harvest has to do with grain that is stored in barns, and that's in verses 14 to 16. The second harvest has to do with grapes that are trodden in a wine press. The grain harvest has to do with a, a rapture of people who will be removed from the earth sometime just before the end of the tribulation. The grape harvest has to do with a gathering of people who will remain on the earth to fight the battle of Armageddon at the second coming of Christ. Now, in, in just a panoramic view, that's what we're talking about here. Now, I, I, last, last time in, in our flocks discussions, uh, what I, I, the feedback that I got is everybody was freaking out about the fact that there is a, a rapture in the tribulation. Now, now listen, let's make sure that we all understand we're not talking about the rapture of the church. That happens just like you've always been taught and like you've always been believe, believed. It happens prior to the tribulation period. We will be removed at that point, okay? But just prior to the end of the tribulation period, God is going to remove his saints off of the earth at a time just prior to the second coming of Christ where the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to fight the battle of Armageddon. And we've talked before. There's all kinds of conflict that goes on about, well, where do you believe the rapture takes place? And the reason that there is a controversy is because the question isn't where do you believe it will take place, is the question is which one? You see, that there, there's more than one rapture. One rapture has already taken place. There's two more yet to come. There, and you know what? Everybody's saying, I, I never heard that before. <sighs> when we were going through Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, you know what the outline was that day? The three heavens, the three raptures, and the three signs. But we've never heard that before. You know what? My bad. It was a long time ago since we were in chapter 4, right? That's, that's what everybody's wanting to say. But, but there is most definitely a tribulation that's going to, I mean, a, a, a rapture 
that is going to take place just prior to the end uh, of the tribulation period. And we, we looked at the, the gloriousness, uh, look on your outline there, the gloriousness of the grain harvest. And again, that's the harvest that depicts the gathering or, or the rapture of tribulation saints to glory. And, and we looked at the reaper of the harvest, which of course is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And he's sitting on a white cloud, he's wearing a golden harp, and he's holding a sharp sickle. And a sickle, of course, is an instrument of harvest or an instrument of reaping. And what he's doing is he's getting ready to reap the harvest of wheat. And what this is, Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16, is the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gave to us the parable of the wheat and tares. And, and what he's doing here is at this point, in verses 14 through 16, he is separating the wheat from the tares so that he can take the wheat and store it in his barn, or in other words, take it to heaven. We looked at the ripeness of, of the harvest. And by this point in the tribulation period, what God is doing is he's just waiting for it all to get ripe, for everything to be revealed, all the wheat, all the tear. He's waiting for it to, to be ripe. And then heaven is going to be more than ready. And then the earth is going to be ripe. And then we looked at the actual reaping of the harvest where Jesus thrust in his sickle to the earth. He separates the wheat from the tear. The tares will be gathered together into bundles out in the field, and later they'll be burned, and then the wheat he'll gather or he'll rapture, if you will, out of his field, store it safely in his barn, and that's the gloriousness of the grain harvest. And again, if you weren't here, that's just a capsulization of all that we looked at. But then when we ran out of time last time, we had just begun to look at the goriness of the grape harvest, the goriness of the grape harvest. And in contrast to the grain harvest, which again is the gathering of tribulation saints to glory, the grape harvest is the gathering of tribulation sinners to Armageddon. And just like the grain harvest had two stages, you had the, the gathering of the, the tares and then the, the harvesting or the reaping of, of the wheat, the same thing happens with the grape harvest. First of all, letter A is the gathering of the clusters of the vine of the earth. And I want to make sure, because we, we, we did this in just such a quick fashion last time, a, a lot of it was just blowing by a lot of it. Let's just make sure that we got all the pieces to the puzzle here. I've just kind of broken out on your study sheet some of the key phrases here, that if you'll see these things, it'll unlock these verses for you. You'll have no problem whatsoever being able to understand where you are in verses 14 through, through 16. He talks about the clusters of grapes, watch this now, of the vine of the earth. And we talked about how that is such an important phrase because Jesus came along in John chapter 15 and verse 1 and didn't just say that he was a vine. He said that he was the vine and not just the vine but the what? The true vine. The reason that he delineated that is because all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32 in the Song of Moses all of the Jews would have fully understood that there was most definitely a false vine. And when Jesus walks into the temple and he begins to say, I am the true vine, they would have understood that that was in contrast to the false vine which produces false grapes. And we went into that last time to begin to see 
what these bitter clusters or these clusters of gall actually are. But what Revelation 14 and verse 18 actually is, is the harvesting of the false vine. And what that means is that the vine of the earth is the Antichrist. And again, we can go back to Deuteronomy 32, and you remember what we saw last time? It says, their rock is not as our what rock, capital R, and their vine is not as our vine. There is a false rock. There is a true rock. There is a false vine. There is a true vine. There are false grapes. There are true grapes. Okay? And what we find here is the, the vine of the earth is the Antichrist. The clusters of grapes will be the fruit of the vine of the earth. Or in other words, those nations and those individuals who follow the Antichrist. They are the fruit of that false vine. Okay, now is that just clear as a bell to you? You see that? Okay, and the fact that the end of verse 18 says that her grapes are fully ripe means that evil has reached its consummation. Evil has come to the place and the evil people of the world are in such arrogant defiance of God that God finally comes to the place to where he says that's as, that's as far as I'm going to let this thing go that, that, that's, that's it and what he does is he thrusts in his sickle and he gathers the vine of the earth who is the vine of the earth y'all talk to me the antichrist and all of his followers and look at the end of verse 19 he gathers them and casts them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And in the context, the great winepress of the wrath of, of God is what we call prophetically Armageddon. Armageddon. A-R-M-A-G-E-D-D-O-N. And what God is saying is this. Just like when they harvest the grapes, what they do is they take that sickle and they begin to take those grapes and what they do is they gather them into a wine press. Okay? Now, we don't grow up in a... It didn't grow up in a culture where there's a wine press. So let me take just a second to make sure you understand what, what it is. You, you know those little pools that, uh, you know, you, your kids have when they're just real little, you know, about this high and, you know, they're about well, whatever maximum 10 feet, you know, in diameter. You, you know what I'm talking about? Shake your head. Let me, okay. It, it'd be like you, you taking that, that big pool and having little little spigots all the way around the outside of this, this thing. And it was what was called the wine press. And you know how they pressed the grapes? This is sick, man. A guy would take off his nasty, dirty sandals and hopefully would wash his nasty, dirty, stinking feet and hopefully go down to Mark's place and get a little pedicure there and <laughs> get all that yuck out of, out of there. And then he'd roll up his drawers, his robe, whatever, gird up his loins, as it were, 
tie that thing up here. And he'd hop in that pool, and he'd just go stomping them grapes. <laughs> and he'd just stomping them and stomping them and stomping them. And you know what's happening? All around the outside of that thing, wine or the, the juice, the fruit of that vine begins to come out into those spigots, and they would collect it. They'd have uh, leather bottles that they would, where they would collect that wine. Makes you want to go slam some wine, doesn't it? You know, what is that floating in there, baby? Huh? This romantic moment is kind of getting lost with that toe jam in there. <laughs> My bad. If you can't find a reason not to drink wine, that's a good one. You know, I don't like toe jam. Okay, that's that's the wine press. Okay? Now you got to get this. This is, what is, this is what is so heavy, man. What he's saying is he's going to gather all of the nations of the world, the armies of the world. They're going to gather over at Armageddon. And for a stretch of real estate, approximately... 180 to 200 miles, 10 miles wide, the armies will be gathered in there to fight what is going to be the final war, the final battle. And they're going to gather themselves there thinking they're all that. You're going to see that in just a few minutes. I mean, the, the pride that's going to be poured out from those people there is just absolutely mind-boggling. And they're going to think they're all that, and what is going to happen is Jesus Christ is going to come out of heaven, and he is going to be the one that's going to stop, or stomp, excuse me, he will stomp the clusters of those grapes, the fruit of the Antichrist and his followers, to the place where he says in verse 20 that the blood is going to come up to the horse's bridles 180 miles long, 10 miles wide. And what everyone wants to do when they come to understand the carnage that's involved, you know what they want to do? Say, well, this is not really going to be to the horse's bridles or in that length of this is symbolic, you see. And you know what? You know what it, it's like? It, it's like the nation of Israel. God said that the nation of Israel, if they didn't follow him, would be dispersed into every nation of the world. And in 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian came in, leveled Jerusalem, and you know what happened? They were scattered into every nation of the world and have been mistreated for centuries and centuries and centuries. And yet, what the Bible said in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that just before the end of the world, God is going to bring the nation of Israel back together. And the bones are going to all come back together. A dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones that we sing about. It's from Ezekiel 38 and 39 where God's going to pull it back together. You know what? 
You know why people wanted to take that as symbolic for years and years and years and years and years? Because there's never been a nation of the world that ever lost their homeland, that ever somehow made it back into their land and were ever regathered. It was an impossibility. Even secular historians will tell you that is the greatest miracle that has ever taken place historically is the regathering of the nation of Israel in 1948. But for centuries, that had to be symbolic because there's no way that that could happen. It, we read back in, in, in Revelation chapter 10 where it talks about an army from the east that would have 200 million soldiers. And everybody said, well, uh, that must be symbolic because do you understand this? Listen, at the time when John wrote it, do you understand there were not 200 million people on the planet? And John is writing, I mean, stupid, crazy, John is writing about an army from one country in the east that would field an army of 200 million men. In June 1965, Time magazine came out and said, China now has an army of, check it out, 200 million men. And all of a sudden, everybody said, oh, I guess we, we sh should take that literally. And you can do with this whatever you want to. You can symbolize that away if you want to. But based on the fact that when God tells you he's dealing with symbolism every time in the book of Revelation and then explains the symbolism, and there's no symbolism that he says is involved here, I would take it to mean, y'all, that there is going to be a stretch of real estate 180 miles long, 10 miles wide, and 4 feet high where the blood is going to come up to the horse's bridle. I really do believe that you can take this, this literally. But the question is, how, is, how are these nations going to get there? What's going to cause them to actually come to this place? Well, there, there's, there's three reasons. Turn to Psalm 2 for the first one. Psalm 2, verse 1. The first reason that we find from the Word of God that these armies will assemble is because of the hatred of nations. Because of the hatred of nations. And, and look at what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed or His Messiah, saying... Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know what the context is here, y'all? You know what all these kings of the earth and all this gathering is? It's what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 14. You know what that crowd of people is going to do? They're going to say, hey, let's just go down there. And when he comes out, because they understand, according to Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4, they know where he's coming. And you know what they're doing there? This is, the, this is the craziest thing in the world to me, man. I mean, absolutely craziest thing in the world. You know what they're doing? They're saying, you know what? Let's go down there. When he comes, let's kick his butt. That's what they're talking about. Yeah, let's let him prove his stuff, man. Bring it on. 
I mean, give me a break, man. And, and oh, but I bet he's worried. You know, there's 400 million of them. And, and you know what it's like? Now, I've never had an ant farm. I, I'm really not a real scientific type of a guy, you know? But it's like you have this, this aquarium in your house. Because you're into ants, okay? And so you got all this little stuff in there. You got all this sand, and, you know, you throw in some twigs and, you know, some little dooley boppers or whatever sort in there to just kind of make it look cool for the ants, you know? And so you put them in there, you get that thing all sealed and, you know, ventilated and all that kind of stuff, and, and you're just in there, and you just come in and look at your ants every once in a while. Anybody got an ant farm? Good. I just need to know if we need to worry about anybody in here. But if you got one, that, that's fine, okay? But it, it, people do this, okay? And, and I guess, you know, it's just real cool to look at the ants and all that, okay? But, but you got this ant farm, and you're just, you're just checking them out, you know? And one of these days, you, you're listening in there, and lo and behold, they're holding a meeting. And they're saying, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what let's do see that little hole right there where he feeds us every now and again I'll tell you what we'll do let's gather right over there by that hole and when he comes let's get him <laughs> and you're going <laughs> say, say what Give me a break, man. Look at verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have him in derision. He's going to be going, What? You think? Okay, that's it. End of story. That's all it takes. But not only will they be there because of the hatred of nations, Revelation 16, another reason. They're going to be there because of the deception of Satan. Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon is who? Satan. And out of the mouth of the, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The first reason they're going to be there is because of the hatred of the nations. The second reason they're going to be there is because of the deception of Satan. And yet, the third reason they're going to be there is because of the sovereignty of God. They're going to be there because God wants them there. They're going to be there because God's going to put his sickle into the earth and he's going to gather them there himself. Isaiah 34 and verse 2, it says, For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. You know how they get there? He delivers them there. Joel 3, 2, I, 
I, God says, will also gather all nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Zephaniah 3.8 says, For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. Zechariah 14, verses 2 and 3, For I, God says, will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Revelation 16, 16 says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. You know why they're there? Because the nations of the world want to be there. Because in their pride, they think they're going to show God something. But they're also going to be there because Satan is going to, through the, the false prophet and the Antichrist and, and his own working, he's going to deceive them, and he's going to gather them there. But if you want the final crushing blow, they're going to be there because the vine of the earth, the clusters of the grapes, is fully ripe because God says... I've had it. And so God himself gathers them there on purpose to stomp them like grapes. And then look at letter B, the trotting of the winepress of the wrath of God. And we talked about this. Once he's gathered them there in Armageddon, then he's going to come out of heaven and he is going to trod on those 400 approximately 400, 200 million of them coming out of the east, okay? Approximately 400 million United Nations soldiers are going to be gathered there, and he is going to begin to trod them like little grapes and like those little ants with little sticks. They'll wave them, and he'll trot them. And we're going to have to, we're going to, have to hurry in order to, to, to see this, but I want you to see seven men that God used to describe this. We're going to have to do it with as little comment as possible. The comment is from God himself. We've already looked at, at David and what he said in Psalm 2, so let's bypass that one. Go to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom? And if you check it out, that's where Job was when he was in tribulation. And if you'll check it out, that's where the nation of Israel is going to be during the tribulation period. And he says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel. Now, now listen. When he came to the earth the first time, he came veiled in a body of human flesh. His apparel was a human body. It veiled who he really was. When Isaiah sees him here, he's glorious in his apparel. You know why? Because he's coming unveiled this time in power and glory. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. Here's the answer. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's, that's who this is. It's me, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Question, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat or the wine press? Here's the answer. I've trodden the wine press alone. And of the people, there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. And you just got to go back to the fact that when Jesus Christ was crucified, there was blood all over his robe, and it was his blood. But this time, when he comes back wearing the royal robe of righteousness, it's going to be stained with blood once again, but it ain't going to be his this time. It's going to be the blood of his enemies. For the day of vengeance, verse 4, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. And I want you to go over to where Jeremiah talks about this same thing in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 30, it's the next book. Therefore, prophesy thou against them all these words and say unto them, check it out now, the Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. And you know what? Isaiah sees, or, or Jeremiah sees the same thing that Isaiah saw. And turn over to the book of Joel, just a little bit over to your right, into the minor prophets after Daniel and Hosea. Joel chapter 3, look at verse 1, For behold, in those days, and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And drop down, if you would, to verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, in the valley of decision, the sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no, no strangers pass through her anymore and I'm wanting you to see something here here are men that are writing separated some of them by hundreds of years having never even read the other guys writings in most cases and you know what they're all writing about the same event and they all write about it the same way using the same Im imagery the sickle wraps uh, 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 grapes the wrath the wine press the whole deal 
You know why they're all writing that? Because the Bible was written by really one author. It was written by God, and when God tells you about something, it doesn't matter to him if this guy never read this guy's writing. He's telling him what to write in the first place. And over and over and over again, you just see this. Let's, uh, we, we don't have time to, to go to the, these uh, other uh, men, but, but, but check it out. You can go to Nahum. You, you can go to Zechariah. And you know what Zechariah says is going to happen? Listen. What Zechariah says is going to happen down in that valley is that when the Lord comes back, and I don't understand how all of the trotting and all the power of God unleashed in all of his fury, I don't understand how it all works, but what it says is that their eyeballs will disintegrate in their sockets and their tongues will just disintegrate in their mouth and it's like, it's like every horror movie that's out right now is what it's like. When the power of God comes down on this planet and he trods the winepress of his wrath. And I went through the word of God and I began to see something. I began to see that when it talks about this event, when it talks about God unleashing his wrath, God keeps asking a question. He wants us to face some questions in light of everything that we're seeing here. I don't have time to take you to these places, but they're on your study sheet. Seven questions God asks concerning his wrath. Number one, and I asked this group of people this this morning, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings. Okay? Now, listen. What it says in Revelation 19, verse 11, is that when the Lord comes back, His armies follow Him. Those are the ones who dwell with the devouring fire. Those are the ones who dwell with His everlasting burnings. And I'm asking you this morning, do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are one of us? That you're one of the ones that will be raptured off of the face of this planet before the tribulation period begins and will return with Jesus Christ at his second coming? Will you be one of us? Now, I'm not asking you if you're a member of this church. I'm not asking you, does everybody in the church think you're going to be there? I'm asking you, do you have the absolute assurance total confidence that you will be among those that dwell with the devouring fire number two that's Isaiah 33 and verse 14 Psalm 90 and verse 11 asks another question who knoweth the power of thine anger and you know what the psalmist is saying now in those last days they're going to be able to comprehend atomic power they're going to be able to comprehend nuclear power but who is it that understands your power? Because let me tell you, nuclear power is not compared to the power of Almighty God. And we need to ask ourselves, do we fully understand what we're talking about here this morning? Number three, Psalm 76 and verse 7. 
Who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? You know what? What what is so wild is there are some people in this room that could be in that valley thinking they're all that when he comes. And he says, listen, who's going to be able to stand once he unleashes his anger? Verse, or Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6, fourth question. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? Malachi 3, 2. Who, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? Revelation six seventeen. For the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to to stand and over and over and over again God keeps saying who do you think you are do you think that you are going to be able to stand against me when I unleash my wrath and my anger my hatred my vengeance who do you think you are are you like one of those little ants in there I think we can take him shake yourself And Paul asks in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, Now listen, listen. Some of you have come in here today, and you're going... Huh. Well, never knew all that. And you run the risk of hearing everything that you heard and walking out those doors and getting back into the flow of life when God, in His grace and mercy and love, has shown you today You don't have to have His wrath unleashed on you. You know what He says in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11? Listen. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So turn ye, He says, turn ye, so that you don't die. It's not that God is is up in heaven saying, Oh, buddy, do I get my jollies doing this? No. Because He's God, because He's holy, because He's just. He will deal with sin. But you don't have to be the object of His wrath. You don't have to. It's like when Jesus, in in Matthew chapter 23, he, He looks down at Jerusalem and He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often what I wanted to do was just, just like a hen gathers up chickens and puts them right up under here. That's what I want to do for you saddest words in all the Bible. Listen to it. He says, that's what I want to do. He says, and ye would not. You don't want me. You don't want my love. And I just got to tell you, folks, if you don't want his love, if you don't want his mercy, if you don't want his grace, you will get his hatred. His wrath, His anger, and His vengeance. And I ask you, Revelation 6 and verse 17, in the great day of His wrath, 
who shall stand? And I can give you the answer. Nobody. Nobody. Let's bow our heads. Now listen, if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ or you're not sure that you've received Jesus Christ, oh my, my, my. You need to be sure of that. Based on the things that we've seen this morning, you you need to be ultra, ultra sure that you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have trusted Him and Him alone, not a church or anything else, but Him and Him alone. Some of you, as you've listened to this today, you know already. It's not even a doubt in your mind. You know you're not. You've never been born again. You've never been a recipient of God's grace by coming to His cross and receiving Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Some of you have never come to that place. And today, if you'd like to respond to the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, oh, it's available to you. But listen, if you're waiting for some big divine zap, to zap you someday, make you do this against your will. You know what? Ain't ever going to happen. Oh, you'll get zapped one day. <laughs> It'll be too late. The zap is the word of God that just was declared to you. The zap is the spirit of God that's showing you right now that you need a savior. And that's the only zap you're going to get. And so if God is speaking to you today, I want to I mean, I, if you will, I feel like I'm Jesus. Wanting it so desperately for you, but I can't make that decision for you. You've got to do it on your own. And our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room. And, and I, oh, listen, if God's speaking to you today, please have the courage to just go and get some help so somebody can take a Bible and begin to show you today how you can respond to God's invitation to receive His grace and, and forgiveness. And oh God, I pray right now for folks that need to be saved, that you would give them that courage. You've convicted them already. And I pray now that they would take the step to become a recipient of the greatest blessing in all the world, the blessing of being able to know you and find out that it's not just to escape wrath, but because of the joy of the relationship that is ours with Christ. Oh, Lord God, may they find that relationship with you today. Save folks in this service. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.